Hello everyone and welcome to Inspiring African Travel. I'm Julia and together with my husband James and our great friend Stuart, this podcast will bring you inspiring interviews from people in travel. We want you to meet the locals with uplifting stories. Stories of female empowerment, conservation heroes, guide adventures, and other amazing people who live and work in tourism in Africa. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the journey with inspiring African travel. Thanks for listening, and welcome to our very first series, Women in Travel. In this series, we'll bring you seven episodes sharing the stories from inspiring women, women who have broken down gender barriers in tourism in Africa. We hope you'll be inspired by our very first podcast series. Enjoy. In this episode, we take a quick detour from Women in Travel to speak to an inspiring woman in conservation. Dr. Tempe Adams works with Elephant Without Borders, an NGO dedicated to protecting this iconic African mammal. Her role in the organization is working with communities in helping them live and farm within wildlife areas. She's so passionate about succeeding in uniting conservation and community empowerment. And in inspiring African travel, we know that responsible tourism can play a crucial role in assisting their work. So we are here at the best location I could possibly imagine in Chobe National Park. It's Puku Flats, everybody. If you know me and you know my love affair with Chobe National Park, you will know that this is indeed my favorite place on the planet. So for me to be able to do a podcast episode sitting in my vehicle with all this beautiful wildlife around us, it's a dream come true. And I'm with Dr. Tempe Adams who, strictly speaking, is not involved in travel. And given this series is about women in travel, we are stepping a little bit out of our topic area. But it doesn't matter because, as I said to her earlier, travel is what got her to Botswana, and therefore it's travel she has to thank for being involved in what she does today. And that is conservation with elephants without borders. She's actually a scientist She doesn't mind being referred to uh, as Dr. Adams. I know this because she's just recently changed her Twitter handle (laughs) to Dr. Tempe Adams. So welcome to Puku Flats. Have you been here before? Thanks, James. Yes. Yeah. And it was actually, to be totally honest, it was you that got Puku Flats on my radar. I used to come into the park quite often, but I never used to spend a huge amount of time here. And I think you really introduced me to the wonder that is Puku. I'll claim it. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> For those who, because your accent is neutralized over the years, so they haven't picked up quite where you're from yet. Where are you from? I'm from Australia. Oh. I'm from a small country town between Sydney and Canberra. Um, you're right. 
I don't know what I sound anymore. I don't know how I sound. The first country I ever traveled to in my life was Botswana with my mum. My mum had always wanted to do a proper safari. Um, and strangely enough, the first country she ever traveled to was South Africa, but she never did safaris. And she always was so intrigued by Botswana and the Okavango Delta. And I remember we had lots of coffee table books in our house on the Okavango Delta. Um, so I was always brought up looking through all these images and pages. And mum said, finally, this is the time we've saved up. Let's go on a safari. And I was 16 years old at the time. So you were bitten by the African bug at a very yeah, young age. Yeah, but I don't think I was aware of it at the time, to be honest. I remember being, we did a mobile safari from, we landed in Maun. And we finished up in Livingston and we did sort of that classic mobile safari through Maremi, you know, through Kwai, up through Chobe and then ending in the falls. I remember never feeling more alive than that, than that first drive out into Maremi. And we came into camp when it was pitch dark and there was hippos everywhere. We were obviously camping right by a lagoon, but we couldn't see it because it was dark. And I remember just thinking it was the most exciting feeling in the world. And Maremi is that kind of place where it's like all of Africa in one spot. Completely, like yeah. Forests, lakes. And we were, you know, it was so beautiful. You know, we were, we, we just finished with a lovely big group of giraffe and then came into camp and everyone was singing and doing that welcome song. And, and it was incredible. I mean, I remember just being so blown away because I didn't, I had no idea what to expect at that time. Really no idea. And actually we had hippos kind of knock our tent around a little bit that night. And I thought, jeepers. You know, it was so exciting. So that got you hooked. Completely. Did you know at that point in time um, that you wanted to be a scientist? No, not at all. I think, uh, I think my family was quite shocked when I started science at university, actually. Uh, I've always been mad on being outside and I've always been crazy about animals and wildlife. So there's always been that love there and we always had lots of pets and I was a big avid horse rider. Um, so the love there, I, I think the biggest thing actually, when I decided to do science, I was looking through the university manual when we, you know, high school was sort of ending, trying to look at options of what to do next. And I remember seeing a park ranger as a job outcome for, from a bachelor of science. And I thought, geez, that would be pretty good. If you get paid to be hanging out in the national park and doing work for the national park, that would be incredible. That would be the dream. I think I'd really like that. So I, I applied and I got into science in all three states. So I think that was a clear indicator I was probably going down the science route. Did you do well in science at school or what's no, the story there? I was rubbish. Hmm. I was not good at all. I actually had a chemistry teacher tell me I was probably not smart enough to do high school chemistry and I'd be better suited for art. Um, but I couldn't shake the idea. And nice. I, then I got in and, and gave it a good whirl. And university, I loved I really loved it. Um, but I ended up getting a job in my second year of university for an Antarctic marine researcher. And that then led me on to do an honours thesis. Um, so that was on actually blue whale uh, ecology and looking at blue whale vocalisations and doing population estimates off the east coast of Australia, but listening to blue whales and using their vocalisations of indicators of population. So there's something about big mammals. That's got you going. I know. It's so embarrassing. Yeah. I'm a very cliche. I like the very big charismatic animals. When did the Africa connection and elephants come into the whole 
situation. Yeah, it is bizarre because I did kind of have a marine major. Um, I was very lucky to be accepted for an internship with a research group called Save the Elephants up in Kenya. Um, and that's run by a very famous elephant biologist called Dr. Ian Douglas Hamilton. And they accepted me. I wrote a letter asking if I could come and get experience with them. And I got a response about two months later saying, when can you come? So I went and did an internship with them midway through my undergrad career, um, my undergrad degree, sorry. And that really threw me in the deep end for elephant conservation because I went straight to a remote research camp in Samburu. Samburu, Kenya. Yeah. Yeah. And then actually previous to that, on my gap year, I did a round the world trip and I ended up in Kenya again, working down on the coast in Diani on the beach there. So That's Kenya, there. so you're in Kenya, you're, you're in Samburu, which is famous for a lot of elephant there, right? Yeah, definitely. And you're doing, you're helping them out and you're still doing your undergraduate. And then did you fall in love with elephant then? Yeah, I think so. Mm. I think, I mean, I don't know how you couldn't to be honest, when you're up there. Well, tell us, what is it about elephants that you like so much? Well, I mean, what was so... I mean, I think I've always admired elephants. There's always been something very... Uh, I don't know what it is about them. There's something very alluring about elephants. It's very... You, you can just sort of sit and watch them, and they're so expressive. You can really... It's very enjoyable. I think you're absolutely right. I think, how can you not love elephants? They are just the classic African animal. So perceptive, so interesting to watch. But of course, they're threatened. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously how you ended up getting into elephant conservation was because you wanted to do something about the future of this animal. What's the current situation for those who don't know? Like, what's the, are they declining? What is the situation? Yeah, so it's interesting. So something I also worked on when I was with Save the Elephants was updating their Mike database, which is monitoring the illegal killing of elephants within their region. And I think that was my first real taste to, sh to see what poaching really looked like. Um, and we went and investigated a number of cases in that time when I was there as well. And that was incredibly, um, very intense experience. and very Freshly killed, yeah, poached Yeah, freshly elephants. poached elephants, yeah, that we were going and documenting. Because mm. um, at the time there was kind of a surge in poaching going on in that region, uh, which I think has since reduced in that part. But it was a very... Yeah, it was, as I said, you know, it really was an experience of jumping in the deep end. Um, but it gave me a really great taste of really what conservation looks like right now and what is happening. Um, but yeah, we, we elephant the elephant population right now is lower than it's ever been. I think it's around 350,000. That's based on the Great Elephant Census that was flown three years ago now. I should definitely know because we were the lead organization on that. You did count two to three some years of those elephants. Ago. Yes, I did count some of those elephants. So around 350,000 yeah. elephants in the whole of Africa. Mm -hmm. And yeah, any that's idea? savannah elephants. Okay, yeah. Not forest elephants, they won't count. Ah, it just doesn't include the forest elephants. Yeah, can't count those elephants in the bush there. It's impossible. How are you going to count? Uh, no, definitely possible, but a different survey technique than aerial surveys. Yes. In fact, I think they're being counted right now. Okay. So it's <laughs> yeah. not that they were just too difficult no. to count because <laughs> no. you didn't do them. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, okay. So 350,000 elephants uh, around about now as of 20, 2020. Mm -hmm. How many were there 10, 5 years ago? 
what do you have anything to compare so, it to? Well, that's that's what's really that was what was so groundbreaking about um, the Great Elephant Census is it was you know basically it's very hard to conserve something if you don't know how many there are left, and that was what the Great Elephant Census was doing was trying to give these countries this baseline information because some of these countries had never been flown before, so they really didn't know what they had left. So this is now a benchmark, so people can see if trends are going to increase, decrease. Obviously, some countries have been flying surveys for a number of years. So then again, they can then see if the trend is increasing or decreasing. But across the board, most of the countries, the majority was a strong decrease. It was a downward trend. Um, and that comes down to ivory poaching. Ivory poaching is incredibly bad now. Arguably, it's the worst it's ever been right now, uh, which I think a lot of people are very shocked to hear. Um, and also, obviously, human population growth. There's, we're taking up more and more space. We're needing more and more resources. And the large charismatic animals like elephants, which require a lot of space and resources, um, they're going to be the ones obviously directly impacted. Interesting, because where you work and live now, Botswana, has a lot of elephant. And so I know that they're quite well known. This country is quite well known as being the model for conservation in Africa. Is that why the elephant population has done well here? Just give us a, just give the listeners a little rundown of the yeah, Botswana situation. Yeah, it's very intriguing, Botswana. It's, Botswana is so different from most other African countries. Botswana has 130,000 elephants around about. It's been sitting around that for the last five years or so, um, which is one third, as we were speaking before, it's one third of the continent's worth of elephants. So it's a very big responsibility. Botswana really is the home of the elephants. And there's a lot of different factors contributing to why that would be. But I think the major thing is the human population is very low here as well. I think the most recent estimate was about 2.3 million. So the low human population and also the wildlife protected areas. The north of the country is hugely wild, you know, designated as wildlife protected areas. So elephants themselves have been given a lot of space, um, which is full testament to Botswana and the policies that they've had. Um, and it's obviously not just for elephants, for all wildlife in the area. So that's how it's, they've been given a lot of space and it's a lot of unfenced areas as well. So it's a lovely big free ranging population. They can move, follow water where they need to. Yeah, they don't have these clear blockages, um, which is extraordinary. And there's very few places left now, honestly, in the world where animals are given such space and resources. Botswana has a very um, peaceful history mm. and that there have been no big wars or tribal conflict in the country whatsoever, really. And when you look at like gorillas in Central Africa yeah. and Angola, just on the neighbours here. You know, war has a tremendously bad impact on wildlife. And that, that clearly must be another reason why Botswana has done so well in the conservation side yeah, of Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think that's a contributing factor. It's a very peaceful nation. Mm. When I'm out there promoting Botswana as a travel destination, it's mm -hmm. one of the, well, that's what I really try and tell people because unfortunately Africa has a bad rap, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, people think it's just positive, you know, poverty and and war sometimes, and and actually, yeah, a place like Botswana, it's doing quite all right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, that is very very true. Does all this mean that we've actually got too many elephants now? Jeez, I mean, that's the most controversial question, and a huge amount of people will believe and say yes, we have too many elephants. Um, 
I think I think we need to go beyond arguing whether or not we have too many and the focus has got to be more what can we do to manage this situation and I think you know it's what we've been monitoring over the many years Mike Chase my boss Dr Mike Chase you know elephants without borders the whole premise was that these elephants are not just Botswana's elephants, they're also Zimbabwe's elephants, Namibia's elephants, Zambia's elephants, Angola's elephants. They always traditionally were. And he monitored that amazing movement of the, you know, of in, an individual elephant that moved between all of those countries. And we're just not seeing that movement anymore. And I think that's that's the sort of thing that we really need to take note of. If they're not moving out of Botswana, why? You know, if those traditional movements aren't happening, why? And what are we going to do as a collective to try and help you know people live with that it's and it's a very very big dilemma it's a huge dilemma elephant management is probably one of the most controversial uh, topics in Botswana and not just Botswana but the region so I think we've got to stop arguing about numbers and and actually really focus on the solutions which leads perfectly into basically what you do in your day-to-day life at the moment I set that one up (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I've been helping out and running the Human Wildlife Coexistence Project for Elephants Without Borders, so exactly what we're saying. It's been something that I've been working on for eight years now, and I've always been pulled towards that topic of science because I love problem solving. And it is a huge dilemma here, and especially here in the Chobe District. We're arguably one of the biggest conflict hotspots in the country where we have a growing human population, expanding developments. So it's trying to come up with smart ways that we can allow coexistence and facilitate coexistence. And no one ever thought of wildlife corridors as a mitigation technique, so some, a tool to use to reduce the conflict, basically, is what a mitigation is. And no one had ever spoken about corridors in that sort of scale or that sort of way. And we obviously look, think of large transboundary corridors, where, which are also very, very important, but these small-scale corridors, it's a growing area of research but basically the premise is if you just acknowledge where the wildlife access um, the access routes going through town obviously their goal is to go and drink at the river or maybe eat the trees by the river if you leave them unblocked then you're going to reduce your conflict but as soon as you block them and you push those animals into areas they previously never went into you're going to create conflict it's a very simple premise but it's strange how we need to consider animal movements a little bit more in these wildlife areas especially when it comes to development yeah and if it's a designated place then people know yeah that uh, they you know they can expect elephant movement there so they should be wary or stay away and as you know as you well know they are intelligent creatures so when they know that there's a safe passage for them to get to the river yep. they're going to use it absolutely but already i think a big fascinating thing that i'm looking at is how they're adapting to the pressures we're putting on them and how they're exactly changing their movement patterns based on our increased development and our and our hours of activity you know we've we documented a really cool thing with elephants um using those urban corridors and they were suddenly not coming into a corridor that was located next to a bar uh, on a Friday and Saturday night, they suddenly would avoid that corridor. And then we looked into, I, then I had a little drive around, around just trying to figure out why that would be. And it's like, oh, of course, they're avoiding the people that are drinking by the bar and the loud music and coming in later. So they're always adapting to us. And I think that's extraordinary. I was lucky enough to join you for a day out in the Chobe Enclave, working with those communities there. And it was really fun day and fascinating because your work there is involved in helping farmers protect their land from elephants and this is the word 
that you use a lot mitigation which is essentially you know you're trying to minimize the the conflict that that will happen between local communities the farmers and the people that live there with the wildlife first of all describe the Chobi enclave because it's quite a cool place mm -hmm. and talk us through your average day working out there with the communities you and your colleague the Chobi enclave i think is a very well kept secret in Botswana. It's a beautiful area. It's a it's a community designated area, and there's a five different villages there. But they're sandwiched between the Chobe National Park and the Forest Reserve. They've got Forest Reserve directly um, neighbouring them, and the Namibian border. Um, but the Chobe Enclave, yeah, it's, and it's a really picturesque area. It's absolutely stunning because these areas are sandwiched between a protected area and a river. Of course, there's going to be conflict and wildlife access. Uh, that area. They pass through that area commonly um, to go and drink at the river and, and eat grass by the riverside. Um, so, And also at the same time it's a community area with the villagers so there's a lot of agriculture. So it's this com it's a more common idea of conflict. So obviously wildlife pass through opportunistically will go and crop raid and this is an area where people really do rely on their crop yield. A very proud farming area. Um, so the whole goal of what we're trying to do is allow farmers to keep farming and keep that traditional practice going and eat their yield, get high yields, um, but without conflict with these without these elephants, and then allow these elephants to also pass through, do what they've always been doing, um, without going and harassing the farmers. So less elephants be getting shot, but farmers with a higher yield. That's the overall goal. Mm. Keep the farmers happy. And it I... is an area that's also had, I mean, it's been a, quite a famous conflict area. So it has had a huge amount of aid and money put into it, but there's been very little success from it. We waited to be invited into the community before we started working there. Um, and we just started off by just kind of getting to know what the conflict really looked like and talking, just having conversations and talking to the farmers, you know, is this something you really want? Do you want a project helping you? Um, so it was just collecting that data and then we've developed something called the Ellie Sensors um, Elephant Repellent um, Project. So it's, so it's myself and I work with this guy called Izzy Mawezi. Cool dude, I like him a lot. Yeah, he's is great. And Izzy is from, from that community. He's the son of the chief in Kavimba, actually. Um, and Izzy and I are the, a duo team. So he represents the community side of things and he gives me insights into, you know, what people would really want. He's great. He's a great representative for us in the community. He's a very competent guy, but he just moved back to Kavimba and he was just always really intrigued um, by conservation. He said it was something that always really interested him. Um, and he's got a number of guides in the family, but obviously also a very traditional farming family as well. So he had that kind of combination that we were really looking for, and it's been working really well. Funny, I've known about him a long, a long time, and I mm. first met him in, um, in Cape Town, of all places. Do you remember that? You did, yeah. At the conservation lab. Yeah, yeah. Izzy and I went to, and Izzy and I and, and Kelly are the program manager at Elephants Without Borders. We went down to the conservation lab, and that was Izzy's first trip. First trip to see mountains, first trip to see the ocean. It was a big trip, um, and he was representing um, our community project, and he did a fantastic job. He just took it in his stride, actually, very much so. Seemed like a total pro. And incredibly uh, humble about his work, but so, so passionate. Like he's yeah. really, he's really into it. Yeah. And how important is it, the team, the two of you doing what you're doing together? Definitely. I mean, I think that's the key with the combination. It's all, there's been lots of different scientists that have gone in there. 
and it doesn't matter even where you're from as a scientist, but a science, you know, it's not going to solve the problem just putting science to the issue. It, you've got to craft and you've got to, you've, that combination of community and science is the key. Um, it wouldn't work without the both of us. You took us to see Mr. Chabea's farm and what a cool dude he is. He's your go-to man for sh for Mr. sharing spinach. with the community. Mr. Spinach. Yeah. Man, so he has got some good spinach. We chowed some of that, Julia and I, straight after we came back from the farms. Freshly picked from the Chobe Enclave. It was delicious. Yeah, that's our big spin. Conflict-free spinach tastes better than any other spinach. <laughs> no, you're right. He's... he's and, and what we've learned, what we learned quite quickly is it's all well and good, even Izzy, you know, coming in and, and kind of explaining what we do and how successful different things are and different different mitigations that we've been trialing. Um, but the best testament for what we've been trying to push out there is actually just farmers learning from other farmers and their experiences with the mitigations. And he has become now our spokesperson um, for the project. And he's so proud. I mean, there's nothing, he honestly is producing such amazing spinach and, and not just spinach goods. You know, he's got an amazing tomato crop coming on. He does microherbs. I mean, nothing can beat hearing him talk about his crop and how successful it's been without any elephants coming in and entering his field. And so he tell really, us, how, how does it work? How does the LE census? So we've created thing? these different, so as us, you know, we've created these different mitigations. So each of our senses, so smell, I always forget one, <laughs> smell, taste, hearing, and touch. So we've created a mitigation for each of those senses. Um, and what we do is, and this is also a slightly different approach that Izzy and I have kind of created, was we do a sort of conflict consultation. And again, you know, again, it's combining that science. I've been trialing each of these mitigations over the years. And elephants, as we know, are incredibly smart. They habituate to things. So we're always kind of adapting those mitigations at the rate that elephants are habituating to them. But at the same time, we come up with these consultations, but work with the farmer. So the farmer helps come up with these ideas as well. It's never us just preaching to them and hoping that it works. That's never going to work. And what worked for Mr. Chabea? So Mr. Chabea, he was very willing. He actually found us in the community. He flagged us down and he's like, you've got to come and see our field. You've got to come and see our field. Um, and we went and checked it out. And he has been using, he started off by using our spray. We have an organic neem-based spray. And then as he expanded, he's like, I would really love this solar-powered electric rope. So each of the mitigations that we have is a solar-powered electric rope. It's a single-strand rope, but it's very high voltage. And it's not connected to the mains, because obviously most of those guys aren't connected to the mains. We're trying to make everything as sustainable and eco-friendly and as low-cost as possible. He's located right next to a wildlife corridor. So you can imagine, I mean, he must be up against it. He had hundreds of elephants literally passing his crop at night time. Wow. And it was extraordinary. And he, and this rope kept them out. <laughs> Thank you for, you know, connecting um, us and seeing what you're doing out there. It all ties in together, as I said, the conservation, yeah. the cultural tourism aspect and the farming and the uh, produce of local goods. And... The more you can stay active in that area, the more we're going to see those three industries come closer together. Yeah, I think there's more morphing going on. You know, it's not so... I've never been someone that just sees themselves as a scientist. You know, I don't... It's You've got to... And that's why the Izzy and I combination works. You know, you've got to combine these things. And it's a beautiful area, the Chobe Enclave. It's so My beautiful. Word. It's Isn't got it? palm trees. Oh, 
Yeah, his field, I mean, the field we were standing in, Jabea's field, is right on the edge of the floodplain and he has this incredible spinach crop, but then he also has these beautiful palms and great birding. I think it's a, it's a really... It's a really extraordinary area, actually. Yeah, if you're listening to this podcast, jump onto our Instagram and Facebook and we'll definitely post some of the pictures that uh, we took when we went out to visit there because it is sensational. And maybe we should do more tourism and conservation-related tours, you know, because I think yeah. guests would find that fascinating is meeting Mr. Jabea and seeing how he lives and how he produces this amazing food that potentially they go back to the lodge and that are eating and i know i know a lot of the lodges are buying local produce but we need we need to we, we can do to, even more we can do definitely more yeah. yeah this is a series about women in travel i want to focus on the day that we spent with you in the chobe enclave because i knew when we were heading out there that we were going to have this interview and I was thinking to myself, how am I going to tie in the women in travel element to who you are and what you've done? And as you were driving through with us through the villages, you kept on telling us about all the different farmers in the area. Mm. And you kept on telling me about this lady with this farm and Mrs. So-and-so who's farming here has got um, an incredible sorghum uh, crop and all of a sudden you kept on telling me about these amazing women that were farming in the area. Mm. Tell me about that because I would generally not think of many women farmers here in yeah. Africa. Yeah. What's the what's the deal there? Yeah, it's true. I mean, largely we deal with obviously crop farmers, crop growers, also nursery, you know, people growing things in nurseries, vegetable gardens, and it's nearly all women that I deal with. Um, and I think that's also a great trick to the Izzy and I dynamic is me being a lady. But we, yeah, generally speaking, traditionally here in Botswana, women tend the fields and men look after the cows and the kraals. They really care a heck of a lot about producing a yield. Well, isn't that interesting? Because remember, Jules, when we interviewed Florence, her mother was a, a really well-respected farmer in yeah. the area where she lived. You said the word, though, and I think that's key, is they care. Yeah. Like, And farming requires a lot of care and attention and that is where women, I think, yeah. Yeah, but there is, you're, you're right, it is a lot of care. And a lot of the ladies will be in the fields all through the day and they have their grandkids there because that's very strong grand, you know, it's it's usually, and it's I'm not saying, it's not really young women, it's actually, uh, you know, older women that are grandmothers that are the ones tending the fields. It is interesting that it is a very female-dominated workplace in a way here. I know you are tremendously driven and determined as a young lady just as a recent graduate you must find it challenging sometimes for your work to be taken seriously would that be fair it can be a challenge for sure but I never want it to be an excuse you know when I first moved here I didn't give my opinion on anything for a long time I just sat and listened and I think that's what to be totally honest a lot of women are very good at doing is listening and observing um, and I just listened, listened and asked lots of different people's opinions from all different walks of life, lots of different stakeholders. And I think it's really important because I felt I couldn't give my opinion until I really felt like I, it warranted it and I'd had enough experience to give it. Jules and I spoke about this for ages when we were talking about the podcast and what, what should be our first series. I was very keen to do 
women in travel and mm -hmm. Jules was a little bit like mm -hmm. I don't want to I don't want it to seem like we're sort of jumping on the bandwagon because right now mm. there's a lot of stuff out there the female empowerment movement is yeah. as strong as it has ever been as we spoke about it more and more we realized that it's the greatest thing ever because it's the, it's high time mm. that women were given a platform and elevated and you and I were speaking earlier about how many women are involved in conservation that you know of yeah the majority of conservation students now are, are women it's it's strongly a female based undergraduate degree now which is fascinating and i think that's that's something that i've chatted to a lot of professors that have been teaching for many years and they've noticed that shift there's a very clear shift that whole game takes a lot of care and empathy and and wanting to i'm not trying to say men don't want or have these attributes they definitely do but there's still that sort of idea of you still need to earn a lot of money to be successful and it's men are tending to still go towards the engineering degrees the banking degrees the things that will earn them some money and there's obviously a lot of status around that whereas women are maybe more more supported and welcomed and more um, attracted to doing the degrees that are really contributing. It's this interesting movement and there's big support for women now to get into more sciences. There's huge support. It's larger now, as we've seen, than ever. Maths and science and women are now being seen as being able to do anything because they have always been doing anything but the opportunities have never been given to them and that's in the same capacity that we're getting now I'm not saying it's all perfect but it's definitely been a big shift and I think you know just going back on women running the fields there's it's a level of ego there as well the women kind of tend to put the egos aside and they they're they're willing to accept if they haven't had good yields in the past and to talk around that and what we've learned from that whereas sometimes some of the men when I talk about it they don't want to admit they haven't had successful crops because they there's, e there's, there's ego there. Often ego can be put aside a little more easily with women. And yeah. I think that can be represented in lots of different industries. Is there a particular woman or a group of women that have inspired you to go out and do what you've done today? Is there anyone out there? Actually, strangely, you say that. I mean, I know you want me to say Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey and those ladies, which are inc you know incredibly inspiring for sure. Someone that always really kept me driven was my cousin and my aunt I never thought I mean lots of people will say to me you know how did I end up working here in Botswana and doing the work I'm doing or down the avenue of conservation but they both my my cousin worked in medical aid and she's worked throughout Africa and she's worked in really challenging environments and she worked in Liberia for a number of years she was the longest running person in um, the medical organization she was working in and she really she was working at a time when Liberia had just come out of a war and there was just no infrastructure at all, very challenging circumstances. And she just kind of got on with it and it was just so normal to hear and she was excelling at what she was doing and she was in a very senior position as a very young woman but really achieving a lot. And she was in potentially really dangerous situations at times. She was working in northern Uganda and running a malaria program, anti-malaria program. And I was always brought up hearing about these sorts of things and talking to her and she never had any excuses. She'd just get on with it. And it was always very inspiring to me. She showed that there was no limits. You've got to figure out what you want to do with your life and what's going to keep you satisfied and driven and, and pursue that. And you can do it. You know, they had such faith. That was always very inspiring because she just kind of paved the way for me. Even with the undergraduate students that I've been talking to, I'd, I then go on and continue conversations with those students that we've had. And it's just about knowing one person that's gone and done something slightly out of the norm. 
and just having that relativity in knowing that it's possible, you've just got to take the chance and do it. Yep. Times are definitely changing. If we were having this conversation 50 years ago, whatever, mm. the situation of women in senior positions across the world was a totally different landscape to what it is now. So we're definitely moving in the right direction. Yeah. Did you not find that when you started working as a scientist did you come into any situations where you felt mm, this is this is irritating a little bit now because I am trying to I'm leading my way in this field and I'm, I'm trying to do things and, and and people are getting in my way or or yeah I think you've got to be very aware of perceptions you know what you can be I'm very aware that I'm not from Botswana I'm very aware that I'm a woman and I'm very aware that you know, you've got to have a lot of information to back you to express your opinion. I can understand the perception, preconceived perceptions about myself in a room, you know, with a lot of officials and, and other experts in, in the same area. So I think you've really got to know what you're talking about before you go and express it, um, which a lot of people ironically don't do. They will just go and express their opinion with no information to back them. So I think being that aware and sensitive to the situation and knowing when your time can be to really have an impact, which again is something I think women are better at doing, timing, knowing your timing. But for sure, I knew for a long time I was never going to be taken seriously. And actually, you almost need to show results before you speak on it. And I think that's how I always kind of went. That's the route I went. Produce good work and then speak on it. Sadly, if I just spoke on it before having the results to back me, it wasn't really going to be taken seriously. There's this perception and it needs to get burst because some of the best scientists I know publishing right now in the field of conservation are women, young women. And I think we need to stop and actually listen a little bit more. But I think just being aware of perceptions and reading your audience and actually just being a little bit smarter to it um, goes a long way. Well, Tempe, we thoroughly enjoyed that, to be very honest with you. I think we learned your approach to doing what you're doing demands a lot of admiration because you've shown patience, you've shown hard work and commitment, and clearly you and your colleague Izzy and what you're doing at Elephants Without Borders, you guys are in it for the long run. You're really there. And yeah, as a as a young woman, you become a, a doctor at a very young age, and that's inspirational. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you know any women out there who would like to share their story, please do get in touch by visiting our website on inspiringafricantravel.com and submitting your details in the Contact Us section. In the meantime, please keep in touch. You can find Inspiring African Travel on all social media platforms. And don't forget to subscribe and share.